0: Hello, we have the first talk today in a new series here on Search for Truth and it's great to have your company. Thanks for tuning in. Mental health and emotional well-being have come to the attention of Western society in recent years. The practice of meditation, concentrating the mind, has become popular as a means of bringing peace and happiness. But it had a darker side too, with some people who practice it reporting feeling anxious, depressive and out of control. The practice of meditation isn't new. It's got its roots in Buddhism. In contrast, uh, Christian meditation can have a very positive value and that's why Brian has called this 12 weeks of studies, The Mindfulness Jesus Endorses. So we'll go to Brian now for an introduction to the series and today's heading is Filling Our Minds, Not Emptying Them. Thanks John. After becoming the
1: Formula One World Motor Racing Champion in 2016, Nico Rosberg was asked about the secret of his success. He replied, I had a mental trainer and looked into meditation. Actually, meditation is a big word. It was more mindfulness training, awareness. If meditation is a big word, then mindfulness is fast becoming another one. It was virtually the word of the year in 2015. Like a rash, this word, and the idea behind it, is all over the media, being promoted as the cure-all solution to the stresses and demands of modern life. And it doesn't appear as if it's going to go away anytime soon. Twenty-six schools in Cumbria, in Northern England, have now established mindfulness as part of the school curriculum. Educational guidelines nowadays talk a lot about supporting the emotional and mental health of pupils. And mindfulness has been the term that's been consistently trending in that connection. Its advocates claim that mindfulness isn't just a calming exercise, but rather that mindfulness, or meditation, changes the brain, creating new neural pathways and rebuilds your grey matter in a way that reduces stress, increases happiness and heightens awareness. Mindfulness is the trendy meditation offshoot endorsed by everyone from National Health Service Departments in the United Kingdom to Oprah Winfrey in the United States. It's focused around the idea of living in the present moment and increasing your self-awareness and curiosity. It's claimed to be life-changing. It's about how we can live well in an age dominated by technology and social pressures which is what makes it so attractive to a great many people, from top sportspersons as we've seen, to educationalists and health practitioners. And it's an immensely attractive idea, of course. Who would not want to slow down from the frenetic pace of modern living? The pace of modern life takes its toll on our health by raising our stress levels, so who wouldn't see the advantage in reducing stress by becoming more aware of our body stress signs? Stress is not new, of course. The Bible repeatedly shines its spotlight on the lives of people undergoing extreme stress. It does that so as to invite us to learn timeless lessons from how they coped. Take, for example, the time in good King Hezekiah's life when we read, in 2 Chronicles 32, after these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. Notice the timing. After these acts of faithfulness, Hezekiah had reigned for almost 14 years and had revived the nation's devotion to God and its temple worship, as well as having shown leadership and defeated past historic enemies of God's people. And yet, at such a time, God permitted a great test which immediately put him under extreme pressure. We can only try to imagine the stress involved when the then world superpower came knocking aggressively on his door. Thankfully he was mindfully aware of the resource he had in God through prayer and enlisted the prophet Isaiah's help in obtaining it. Now let's take the case of someone else under great stress, this time the prophet Elijah, And we'll come to First Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. We read a reference there to all that Elijah had done. This would include a reference to the climactic showdown Elijah had staged on Mount Carmel when he challenged hundreds of false prophets who had been misleading the nation he challenged them to a contest to prove whose God was the true God. It had resulted in a dramatic sh- demonstration of the existence of the God of the prophets and founding fathers of Israel. Perhaps Elijah had especially hoped that the events on Mount Carmel would decisively turn around the top leadership in Israel. If so, Elijah forgot that people reject God despite the evidence not because of the evidence. His death wish here, expressed so soon after his greatest victory, shows the immense strain that he was under. We then have the description of what amounts to nothing short of a suicide attempt when he left his servant behind in order to go a day's journey deeper into the unforgiving desert south of Beersheba. It's a desert in which no one can live for long, certainly not without water. Elijah wouldn't surrender to Jezebel but he'd surrender his life to God instead. For in depressed mood, and all burned out in service for God, being in a state of emotional collapse, he now considered he was no better than the earlier prophets. After all, he too had failed to bring about a complete revival, hadn't he? And that, even with the most spectacular of showdowns. But we could read on, if we took the time, to find out how God brings him back to the bedrock of his faith, and perhaps indicates that he was going to use Elijah in gentler ways in the future. Finally, consider with me the stressful time Israel's most famous king knew. We read this from 1 Samuel chapter 30. Then it happened, when David and his men came to Ziklag, on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag, and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire, and they took captive the women and all who were in it, both great and small, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David was greatly distressed, as we've just read. The very word used in the text seems to hint at the pressure he was under, being a word fitted to other occasions, such as when a besieged city is being described, or else a cramped state of affairs. Under the pressure of so unexpected and widespread a calamity for which he was being held personally accountable, the spirit of any other leader guided by ordinary motives would have sunk. But David, we read, encouraged himself in the Lord his God. What's common to all these instructive examples is how the person concerned overcame by fortifying themselves with a greater awareness of God and his present help in any time of trouble. Those are the words we find in Psalm 46 and 1, aren't they? God being a present help in any kind of trouble. Or more emphatically, the thought in that verse is that God has always been found to have been a superlative help in difficulties. What a stress buster it is to be keenly aware of such a track record in the current difficulty that we're facing. But a greater sense of God can be experienced in other ways too, such as enjoying the moment, whether it contains a sunset or a bird song. Of course, the secular interest in mindfulness doesn't specifically mention God. Rather, it's about having a heightened awareness of our thoughts and feelings. For example, when catching ourselves unhelpfully brooding on something, or at other times, tuning into and enjoying more of what's going on around us. These would all, I think, be considered generally as being good things in themselves, the kind of things endorsed by the British National Health Service these days under the banner heading of mindfulness. While some might reject all value in such things because it smacks too much of self-absorption, or maybe even because of its suspected Buddhist origins, Is it not possible to trace the usefulness in the idea to a deeper root, not to any kind of meditation which tries to empty the mind, but instead to revive the idea of biblical meditation, where the mind is filled with a sense of the presence of God, the immediacy of God, and his relevance to what we are experiencing at the moment? Was this not the heightened kind of awareness of God that strengthened David's hands? The Apostle Paul's Christianity was first and foremost the living out of a relationship with Jesus Christ in the here and now, in the ups and downs of everyday life. He knew how to be abased one moment and how to abound in the next, because in them all he too was aware that the Lord was strengthening him. As well as a balancing thoughtfulness for others, which is certainly a clear biblical emphasis, Isn't it essential for our spiritual health and well-being that we sense the presence of God and regularly enjoy times when we bask in our beliefs, holding scriptures in our mind and connecting more deeply with God in our lives as we journey through each day, one moment at a time? There is great merit in bringing an awareness of eternal realities into the present moment of time. I trust you agree. And in what follows, we'll try to identify mindfulness in action in some of the great lives recounted in the Bible and so turn to explore its value in our own life.
0: I do hope you enjoyed Brian's first talk in this series and we can expect some interesting and valuable teaching in the weeks to come, God willing. Christian mindfulness can not only help us to appreciate being in the presence of God but can also lead to a closer relationship with our Lord Jesus. So we'll be seeing how that can happen in the weeks ahead. If you have any questions about today's talk, please write in and Brian will be glad to help. There's a transcript book for all the talks in this series and it's available free on request by asking for the title The Mindfulness Jesus Endorses. You can order the book by email or by post and here's our address. Search for Truth Hayes Press The Barn Flaxlands Royal Wootton Bassett Swindon SN48DY UK And our email address is is SFT at churchesofgod.info. So once again, many thanks for your company. It's been great to have you with us again. So next week, Brian has the second talk in this series, so please join us again if you can. For now, it's very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, studio technician David, our singers, and me, John. So goodbye, and may God richly bless you. Bye.